Hi, <clears throat> my name is uh, Knut Peterson. Thanks very much for coming, Dennis. It was a bit of a struggle getting everything organized, but uh, I'm glad we made it, made it work. Uh, my question is to you, uh, I think everybody needs to look themselves in the mirror and uh, tell themselves that we are complicit in this situation because uh, if the Canadian politicians had any pressure from the public, surely they would have reacted differently. Uh, so my question to you is, uh, do you think uh, under a Liberal government we would have had a different situation? Well, I think Prime Minister Harper is correct when he says that much of the abuse that happened with Omar Khadr, that the Supreme Court of Canada criticised, was done under the Liberal government. So, no, I, I've lost faith in any politician, to be honest. And I'm big on making things, making lawyers, not lawyers, but certainly lawyers as well, but big in making politicians accountable. Uh, Terry Shellington, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, some at our table were interested in hearing you uh, reflect <coughs> about the role of the Canadian government. And uh, uh, So my question is part of that. Um, some of us watched with interest as the Canadian government seemed to ignore the, the Supreme Court uh, response. And do you want to reflect as a lawyer about uh, like how, how, does, how does a government free to do that? <coughs> That's a lot of information. You know, when I started off, when I to represent Omar Khadr, what I did was because I had done some research and because I knew about Guantanamo in its early stages, I simply wrote a letter to our government saying, I understand we have this young man in Guantanamo Bay. I've been asked by the Center for Constitutional Law of New York to provide him assistance, and can you help me? And I, absolute silence. And then I wrote numerous letters, and a couple of times my response was, I'll pass this on to someone else, or we can't help you. And so then my letters changed their tone and I asked for disclosure, any information that they had under the Department of Foreign Affairs and I was denied. And then I followed up then by writing and as you know each and every government we ever had talks about transparency. So under the Freedom of Information Act I requested as a right as a citizen whatever information that they had on Omar Khadr. And I kept being denied, denied, denied. And so I appealed to a superior person in, in office in Ottawa, and I was still denied. And then I'd get... And then I would challenge. And I would challenge in courts. And I would meet defences such as we can't give you information because it's national security, we can't do this because of its privilege. And that took me, 
That was a five-year journey of fighting in court all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada just to get what I as a citizen am entitled to under the Freedom of Information Act. And when in Canada won the first Supreme Court ruling on that issue, said I'm entitled to that information. And when I received that information, there was nothing about national security in it. There was nothing of privilege. What it was, it was hiding the egregious misconduct under the Liberal government of sending CSIS agents into Guantanamo Bay to assist the Americans in interrogating Omar Khadr, knowing that he had been tortured prior to their arrival. So, and I was in a debate with Anne McClellan, who was then the former Deputy Prime Minister. And I was at a panel you know, in the summer held by a university, and I was one of the most delightful times of my life. Because she stood up and what, it, was, it, was a, it was a panel on privacy rights. And she said, essentially, trust governments. Trust us. <coughs> and then there was an academic who talked, and then it was my turn. And being Scottish, my, you know, I'll never get a job in human resources. <laughs> so I said, she asked you to trust you. And she would know whether she should be trusted or not because she was Deputy Prime Minister and when my client, was, Omar Khadr, was languishing in Guantanamo Bay. And I told the audience of bureaucrats about my story to get that information. I said, at the end of the day, all the, I was forced to spend monies and battles for five years just to get something I was entitled to, which, should, which was just a cover-up for the misconduct of the Liberal government. She didn't bat an eyelid. Not, and I said, maybe she can explain it to you. And so when it was all over, and dinner was finished, and the talk was finished, and she had this retinue, she came up to me, and I'd moved from... <coughs> being Mr. Redney, to Dennis. And she said, Dennis, I wish you all the best. And I said to her, well, why don't you help me? Why don't you stand up and speak out? And she looked at me like I was an idiot, smiled at me, you little fool, and left with her retinue. No shame. I spoke with... with um, a former Prime Minister at, at um, Martin, thank you. What he said, I said to him, I read your book, which is a lie. I glanced at it in chapters. And he said if he'd known then what he knew now, he would, do something, he would have done something different. So I asked him to speak up on behalf of Omar Khadr, right the wrong. And he said, well, you know, Mr. Redney, I'm no longer in politics, as if I don't read. And he said, you know, I, I'm, I'm lending my name to Aboriginal rights, and I'm lending my name to um, the environment. Where was that obligation he felt to right or wrong? And, you know, 
I've, I have gone everywhere. I too, I've lectured from one end of Canada to the other. And the reason why I lectured, I was a lawyer. I know I'm not completely answering your question, but I'll and half of it so far. I started off as a lawyer. And myself and Abe Whitland, and we have been tremendously successful. But, Omar, but the law is, has been trumped by politics. And that saddens me. And any lawyers who are here, are there any lawyers here? Any lawyers that should be here? <coughs> it saddens me. Because I've said to you, you, your children, law is a powerful tool. Use it. Use it to challenge. Use it to do great things. So I've been everywhere. And I'm not happy to say that truly politics trumps. And that is an indictment on the, the country we're in. Because we had the Federal Court of Appeal who said to our government, you breached his right. The Supreme Court says you breached his right. And when I, someone gets harmed in a lawsuit, they need to get a remedy. Well, the last thing I a remedy is generally money. As much as I need the money, that's not going to help Omar. And so the judge said the only remedy that makes sense is to request that he come back to Canada. Because Canada interviewed him, interrogated him, passed information on to the Americans. The Americans used it as a continuing breach. And the Supreme Court then, when it went up to the Supreme Court, they took the easy way out. Instead of ordering Canada to bring him home, they made a declaration. We'd like you to consider bringing them home. And so it's shocking how our government has, ign has ignored the rule of law. Yep, next. <coughs> Hi, my name is Frances Schultz, and I really appreciate what you've uh, given us here today. And um, I'm following up on what Terry asked you, so he beat me to the draw in a way. But really and truly, the real criminals in this case are the people in the government, and they're not being put in jail, in the new jails that are going to be built to house the people who have committed unreported crimes, and yet they're really committing the, the, the worst crimes in this country. Is there nothing that can be done apart from kicking them out? Well, you know, it's your country. Yeah. You know, you pay your money, you want good service. When you pay a taxi driver, you want to make sure he takes you to the place you pay to go to. When you send a, a politician to Ottawa, he's, he's your representative. He works for you. That's my training and my upbringing. And I make people accountable. You know, and, and you too can do so too. I find it shocking as someone who has studied history and understands the role of politicians from the 17th century onwards. And we had politicians who would stand in Parliament for hours and hours and hours in the 17th century and they would talk. And then the, and then the lectures would be sold out within hours. To today where we have politicians, many politicians, 
who just will not answer questions. They, they will tell you that um, the Prime Minister's office will speak for me and tell me what to say. I would refuse to allow that. In fact, if I were to start all over again, I'd be a revolutionary. <laughs> and what I mean by that is I wouldn't speak to adults. I'd speak to the high school kids. And I would send them home to, you, to each and every parent they had and make your life miserable. <laughs> make you go and knock on doors. Make you go and speak to your politician. It's really up to you. Because I'm not running for politics, by the way. But what I want to say to you is, I have a real fear for this country. And although, and we're all responsible, but, but to be fair to each and every one of us everyday people, is that we have institutions in place that are there to protect our values. Just as in Germany, Nazi Germany, they had institutions in place, and then some little guy called Hitler who couldn't hold down a job is able to have these institutions that we have, from parliament to churches, to all kinds of religious organizations, all kinds of legal organizations, all kinds of other organizations, from human rights to whatever, that failed to protect the Germans from horrible, evil values. And in my journey, when I look at these, these organizations, I've never had a church come to help me. I've never had a law society come to me. Where are those lawyers? What distinguishes a lawyer, a real estate lawyer from a criminal lawyer to whatever? It's their commitment to justice. What distinguishes you as human beings at the end of the day when you're sitting in the park and talking about your life? It's how you treat your children. So we have, we rely upon these civil institutions to help us remain a civil society. And they are really fragile. They can't react for you. They may react at the next general meeting and make a statement and that's it. So it's really up to us to ensure that our politicians carry out the values that we believe in. And it's simply a matter of us getting off the chair and making ourselves a nuisance. Thank you. No, I can, it's all right. I've been teaching for over 50 years, and if I can't make myself heard in this room, I ought to give it up. <laughs> anyway, I, I am a professor of political science at the University of Lethbridge, and I just wanted to make a, a couple of comments, and perhaps you might respond. But um, one, of the, uh, one of the problems uh, that I have noticed over the years is the total ignorance on the part of most people about the role that politics uh, plays in our daily lives. And uh, it, as a result of that, what, we've, what we're seeing happening in the United States, and I fear that it's coming across the border, is that we're giving up civil liberties and rights for security.
and people want to be secure, and in the and if they have to give up a few rights along the way, well, that's fine because it's better to be secure and comfortable than it is to be agitated and uncomfortable. Uh, the other the other comment that I wanted to make is that I think that um, uh, all you have to do is to look at the province of Alberta. I once said on national television that we had the stupidest voters in the country in this province. All you have to do is to look at the government and the political party. We keep returning to office, and uh, I think that I think that the example that example makes most of my arguments. But but we've got we've got to make people understand. The Greeks said that politics was the queen of human activity. And I find my students at the university have no understanding of what politics is, how it plays in their daily lives, why they have to graduate with $40,000 debt when perhaps if the government wasn't spending $3 billion on prisons, we might be able to finance education and put it to real use instead of to a false use because the criminal rate in this, pro in this country has gone down 10% in the last three years. Could I, could I just jump in here because we need a question. We've got a couple of questioners there. Okay. And thanks I just, for well, I, I just what, he, what he thinks about the lack of interest okay. or knowledge of people in politics and the role okay. that plays can, in their lives. You, well, thanks. That's, that's helpful. Thank you. Every day, particularly south of the border, well, let me step back. We live in an age of the politics of fear. We're going to be attacked tomorrow. The ice cap's melting. Killer bees are coming up from South America. And I have listened to talk shows in the States because I'm an addict on talk shows. Now this satellite radio, and when I'm in the States, I listen to them all. And I listen to people saying, and I've heard this, the government's supposed to protect us. We have created, the, we have created great fears. If you ask people today about the biggest threat in Europe in terms of crime, they'll say Muslims. And yet, if you look at statistics... It doesn't reflect that. If you look at today, about you talked about building prisons, and you look at the crime rate, the crime rate's gone down. But we have the, we have, and I, I use the word politics of fear, we have fear being used every day in order to direct you in a different way. And we've also become apathetic. I know that. I look at the mosaic of Canada that I understood and I came here over 20 years ago and through my journey um, I'm like one of those stupid people you talked about. I didn't really understand the role of politics in my life until I started this journey. And I, I run into politicians who have fancy cars and a chauffeur and the bodyguard at my expense 
and can and I guarantee you, if you if you research your subject and you ask them a few questions, they can't answer you. But they can live and pretend they're better than you and I, or more intelligent than you and I, because we don't make them accountable. It's as simple as that. That's the equalizer. You make sure that when they come home here, your kids, your university students, you yourself have made appointments to talk to them and ask them what you've been doing in Ottawa and why he hasn't been doing things. Thank you. Sir. Thanks, Dad. My name is Tad Mitsui. My question is a very simple one. By the way, thank you. Totally, totally inspiring. Does race come into the picture? I remember in the beginning of a war in Afghanistan, white American convert into Muslim was caught amongst either Al-Qaeda or Taliban. I don't remember. I remember him being tried, but I'm sure he was never sent to Guantanamo Bay. And uh, we never heard of him ever since. Is he free walking in the streets, or what happened to him? And uh, this white man, adult, convert to Muslim, no. caught in Al-Qaeda, and then Omar Qadar, who was caught when he was 15. What's the difference? Thank you. The Qadar story, we could talk about Qadar for days. When I said it touches upon so many issues, from the complex to whatever. It, that's truly, Qadar is about who we are. I told you, you know, my wife, not so long ago, criticized me for some strange reason. <laughs> and what she said it was when she went to church, which is an Anglican, people think she's either divorced or widowed. And I said, well, look, I'll go. So long as you get the minister to talk about human dignity and torture, which I'm particularly interested in. And so she did that. She's going to show me up. And the minister said, well, you know, I'd have to talk to the bishop. Does race play a role? Of course. Of course. It absolutely. Particularly at the States, the war on terror. I gave a lecture at the University of San Francisco to a whole panel of judges, lawyers, students and public. And I started off because I was tired, and I started off by saying we all know that all Muslims are terrorists. There's a silence. And if they're not terrorists, they know someone who is a terrorist. And the audience started to think, who is this guy? And then I said, but it doesn't really matter, because they're all going to become terrorists. And then I said, you're all uncomfortable. But truly, the overwhelming barrage of media is about bad Muslims. And so every Muslim, whether, he's, whether there's a half a dozen in this room or none, they are responsible for what goes on in the world. For anything that goes wrong, they're the bad guys. That's what comes out of the media. 
They are they represent over I don't know what the population of Muslims, but it's at least six hundred, almost a billion, I would think. And so they're responsible for the acts of somebody in Sri Lanka, somebody in London, because they're all bad people. We don't talk about Christians like that. Because we know that Christians don't get arrested. They don't do any bad things. So race does play a role. What also plays a role is religious intolerance. And when I've raised that in the States, I don't get very far. I get thrown out the door, bag in my hand, chased up the streets. But I, the, the orthodox Christian right in the States is incredibly political and incredibly linked with military. And so I have real fears about the state of intolerance in society today. Okay, thanks. Uh, my name is Bal Bura. And I'd like to thank you for coming to Lethbridge and, and enlightening us on this issue. I have a couple of questions. Why do you think the U.S. didn't just shoot him when they caught him in Afghanistan? And did U.N. had any role played in it at all to, to free him up? Or, or is there any convention at the U.N. that it could be done? Thank you. Well, let me deal with the last question, which I could answer. Is that Omar Khadr, particularly as a youth, is entitled to all kinds of international protection. The Convention on the Rights of the Child is the one international treaty that's signed by every country in the world, except two countries. Somalia, that failed state, and the United States. And that treaty protects children, recognizes that children have a special status. But for political reasons, because children in states go, to, go into the army at an early age or are put on death row, they're not bound by that. He's entitled to protection from torture, the Convention on Torture, which is the one which is which is the one treaty that every nation knows you don't have to discuss it. Except we now talk about aggressive techniques. We don't talk about torture. We do movies about torture. We've it's now become part of the mainstream of our thought. But I was brought up when you mentioned torture as a horror. And I have now seen victims of torture, not just Omar. And it's something I can't joke about. Then there's the Convention on the Rights of the Child. And then there's the, there's the Child Soldier Protocol. And what, what is that? That is a convention that the United States and Canada jointly introduced and signed on. Recognizing, particularly on the African continent, that children are fighting in wars, doing horrific deeds, and it was an acknowledgement that children are victims and, and perpetrated by adults who put them in that position. Omar, father. In fact, Canada spends millions of dollars today 
rehabilitating child soldiers in Sierra Leone and other places. But Omar Khadr, who clearly was put in harm's way by his father, held in a house by senior and aggressive adults, attacked the house attacked by Americans, soldiers. He was clearly a child soldier. And he was 15 years of age. He has had all kinds of international protections that have just been denied. And so when you're a signatory in an international agreement, although the United States will not recognize those interna- these, these treaties applied to Omar Khadr or anybody in Guantanamo Bay, Canada, because it's signed on, has an obligation to stand up. But we've sold the rule of law down, down the river. Because what goes on with Omar Khadr goes from beyond Omar Khadr. It really makes me, and through me, hopefully you, to question what kind of society we're in. Who's running the ship? And whose values are being expressed? Thank you. So thanks very much. Uh, we're, we're just on time. Um, you're invited uh, on your way out if you, if you want to, to um, sign a petition to the Canadian government regarding the devaluation of the Canadian justice system in the case of Omar Khadr. Okay? Um, and if you uh, want further information and so on, we uh, actually, Dennis, when are you leaving us? You're leaving now. Okay, so he's going to be flying off uh, to other parts. But um, I think that uh, it's kind of like the bonnets of Bonnie Dundee, you know. You've no seen the last of my bonnets and me. It was the thing. Anyway, uh, thanks a lot. It's, uh, and thank you a lot for a really great question. Sorry we couldn't get uh, uh, the, the last one in. But uh, thanks for coming and thanks for uh, giving Dennis a lot of uh, thought. Thanks very much.